Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast exploring how different healthcare systems adopt technologies in healthcare. I'm your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and if you're curious about different cultures, barriers to success in different countries, and wish to get inspired by varied views of medical healthcare experts and entrepreneurs around the globe, this is the show for you. In today's episode, we're bringing the future to the present. I talked to one of the key opinion leaders in medical futurism, Dr. Bertalan Meshko. He was in Ljubljana in December presenting his views about the future of medicine at an internal event organized by Triglau Insurance Company. He shared his findings on new technologies in medicine and consumer sensors he keeps testing out. He actually has more than 100 gigabytes of data about his health and fitness and made different lifestyle changes based on the analysis of the data. Wondering how long he predicts to live? Be sure to listen to the conversation until the end. You know, you completely ruined my plan. Um, what did I do? Well, futurism is about inspiring, about saying how the world is going to be different or how, how better it could be. And in your talk today, the first thing you said was healthcare is doomed. Because it is. Why? Why but would you say that? We, we always have to, in futuristic studies, we always start with something that's going on right now. And then we try to extrapolate from trends that we see today into what might come next. But I'm not a futurist. I'm a medical futurist. So I just don't care about futuristic predictions about things that might happen 20, 30 years from now. I'm interested in how to bring futuristic looking technologies into healthcare today. And for this, we need to be honest and start where we are, that healthcare is doomed. Okay, so maybe if we can go to you and everything that you've tried out um, by now, because you try a lot of different gadgets and different devices that are coming to, to the market. How many gigabytes of data about yourself do you have and on how many platforms? Well, that's a good question. I certainly have more than 100 gigabytes on at least three devices or platforms. Three devices, and I don't know how many platforms. It must be, you know, 50-ish or even more. So it's scattered around. My data is, is pouring out of my system. My privacy is breached, obviously, because I have to test these devices to be able to tell people which ones are medically reliable, which ones are useless. And I know I'm in, in that situation, but everyone should be in control about what's happening to their data. My point is not that whether it, whether the use of technologies brings us this era or not. My point is it's going to happen whether we want it or not. But while we are talking about the potential ethical considerations and futuristic scenarios about using technologies, we have a chance to prepare. And right now we are not prepared. So how many uh, things do you try out, let's say, on a weekly or a monthly basis? And percentage-wise, if you would estimate how many of them are actually useful? Well, at least one or two are the ones that I try. New devices. Per week. Um, virtu per week. Virtual reality gadgets, uh, sensors, genetic tests. I get these from companies to try. And I think about 10% of them are are the ones that I say that, well, it's, I could use that for medical purposes. I could get something out of it as a health benefit, but otherwise all the others are, 
are claiming more than what they can really do. They're too expensive or too sporadically used or just local examples. They're just not disruptive enough. I still want to uh, be illustrative uh, a bit. So can you take us maybe through your day? How many sensors per day do you wear? How many uh, data do you look at? How many data do you analyze? So how does it look like when you get up until you go to sleep? That's not a fair question because when I have to test new things, of course, I I use overuse them. But on an absolutely common day, well, I wake up at the best time because my the my smartwatch smartphone combination makes sure that um, I wake up at the slot at the point of time where I'm not in deep sleep anymore. In light sleep, it's easier to wake up. So I wake up immediately. There's a vibration on my smartwatch. I know that. I was between 5.30 and 6 a.m. It found the best spot. Um, by checking the vibration, I have to turn to my smartphone. And I know it's going to sound weird or funny, but I have to solve four math calculations on my phone. That's that's how I can turn off the vibration. Up. How long does that take you? A few seconds or so. But when I get it done, I'm awake for sure. Plus, I'm energized. I don't need, you know... Um, a shift or a, a puff buffer in time to make sure I get on my feet. I can wake up immediately because cognitively I'm up. Uh, during the day, I even, you know, gradually check my phone more and more, my uh, smartwatch more and more to see how physically active I am. If I go to have exercises or go out for a running session, I click on my smartwatch to make sure that it measures in details how I perform. I check those when I'm done. So I see how differently I performed today than yesterday or the day before that. And um, I think I don't use more devices on a daily basis. But when I go to sleep, I use the, the application on my phone called Sleep as Android. And it can help me find the ideal time range to wake me up in the morning. So I don't have to decide it myself. I go with it and... Um, I fall asleep quite fast because I know exactly what I have to do before going to sleep to get the most out of my sleep sessions. So that, that, that happens in a, on a normal day. You're one of the motivated users and I'm assuming that that, that's also where the idea that if people or patients have data about themselves that can motivate them to behave better, to live more healthy. Um, but when it comes to sickness sometimes, or just, you know, dealing with health, that can be overwhelming around all the other problems that we have in life. And people stop using wearables. They stop using um, apps just because they don't want to have that on their mind. So in that sense, where do you see the skepticism around the potential of these solutions? So many questions in once. I'm trying to address all these. For patients who want to live a healthy life, for them, for most of them, there is no intrinsic motivation. We are not fitness gurus. But still, with the right, right use of technologies, we can live healthy lives. We can't do that without technologies because if so, we would have been doing that for decades. For decades, we've known that smoking, um, bad lifestyle habits, uh, little exercise, alcohol and all these lead to medical conditions. Still, we live quite unhealthy lives. So I think for healthy people, data is their only motivation to live even healthier lives. For patients with medical conditions already, they are already motivated. And I understand that. But not really the chronic patients. 
because with the chronic patients, sometimes their disease can become a new normal and even consequences they know could happen in the future are not motivational enough because they are far away in the future. For heavy people, that's true. For people with conditions, if they have, if they face symptoms, medical issues every day, and you tell them that it could get better, they will do whatever is needed to make those better. If it's through the use of technologies, okay, if it's a more better relationship with their physician or more peer to peer, you know, patient communication, then that's the one. But they are very much motivated. But I have to disagree a bit here, maybe with the example of diabetes, uh, which we covered in one of the previous episodes. And it's uh, when you have a, a chronic uh, disease as such, which has all the uh, a lot of other comorbidities as well. You know, it's just it, it's just too much. Uh, David Cliff, um, who's a diabetic investor I talked to, illustrated it very nicely. He said, if you lose a lot of weight and you come into a bar, you know, friends will say, oh, my God. You looked, uh, you look so great. You lost so much weight. But if you have diabetes, nobody is going to look at you and say, "Oh my God, your A1C is so amazing." You know, so it's uh, it can be overwhelming to deal with a disease. So at a certain point, patients can decide not to. That's why compliance is such an issue in healthcare. That's why taking medicine as they should be taken is such a big problem. And it's not that um, patients would forget to take, take their medicine. Pill reminders don't really work to, on all the patients, of course. We're not talking about everyone. Um, and one of the reasons is also uh, because when patients don't do something, it sometimes makes them feel that their, their life is in control. That's why supplements are so used com- and sometimes patients decide to only try to manage their health through supplements instead of the prescribed medicine. Let me disagree now. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> I think patient, the compliance global is about 50%. Half of patients comply with therapies they are prescribed, half do not. I think it's because they are not engaged. Why would you follow orders that you got above your shoulder in which you had no saying, you were not involved, you were not asked. When, when you see studies uh, about certain conditions that require a patient's active uh, motivation to, to change stuff, to change lifestyle, when they involve the patients by showing them the data every day or just a few times a year, compliance is much better when they are engaged and they get access to their own data. So I think compliance is low globally because we think that patients should just, which is, which just need to tell them what to do and they will follow the orders. But why would you do that when you don't even understand why you need that medication? Why, how your condition is structured? What's going to happen to you? So you have many open-ended questions without answers. When you go to your GP or your physician, you are not encouraged to ask. You're encouraged to follow. But by engaging them more, we can change compliance. Regarding the, the, the point about motivation, I think if patients understand or realize that they could get better, no matter for how long they had been in that disease, they will be motivated. They will, they will, they won't need extrinsic motivational factors to make a change in their lifestyles. If they know they could get better or remove side effects or just reduce symptoms from their lives, they will do whatever it means. 
I think a lot of times the, the issue is that until a problem doesn't cause a physical discomfort, there is no real encouragement to, to do something. If you don't, if you, if you feel bad, then maybe you're going to try to start tracking your sleep. If, if that's the problem, if you feel pain, you will want to do everything in your power to get rid of that pain. But if that's missing, then sometimes instant gratification is more important than the, the long-term. Uh, exactly. That That's how we are structured, that we focus on the next coming minutes, not the next coming decades or so. But where digital health can play a role in this is by using technologies, we can show people what's going to happen to them. There's an application in Germany approved by the insurance companies there. And if you go to uh, your ophthalmologist, your eye uh, doctor with an eye problem, that might lead to cataract later on in your life, and you have to change your lifestyle now to avoid that uh, later, they can show you through an application that by looking through the smartphone's camera and you look at the same bird that you're seeing right now, they can show you how your vision would change by having cataract if you keep on having the same lifestyle. That's a persuading point for them. By showing people that in your lifestyle, in your gender, age, all these details, the same people had these kinds of diseases from one, three, five, ten years later. It might persuade them to change lifestyle today because we are very bad at trading with the future. I think that's where futuristic studies can help. But we need to create this habit in our lives that, of course, I live in now, but I have to trade ideas, ethical issues, scenarios with the future, thinking about the question, what if... What if I keep on doing that? What might happen to me in five, ten years? What if I, what if something goes wrong or a technology goes berserk? By trading with the future constantly, we might be able to get persuaded a bit more easily to change things today, but that only happens through data. Which are your priorities in that sense? So which habits have you established based on your data and you're not querying them no matter what? I'm lucky. I have no medical conditions as far as I know. That's crucial that there might be some, but I don't know about them. I don't have symptoms. Because of my sleep trackers, I learned that I need at least seven and a half hours. So I get that done. I know that quality is more important than quantity for my sleep. So I need one long deep sleep. I learned what I had to do to make sure I will have at least one long deep sleep, no matter the circumstances, you know, little baby at home or travel schedule, whatever. Because of my fitness trackers, I learned that if I exercise 30 minutes on average per day, my resting pause goes down to 60 something, 64, 65. It used to be 70 before. I I feel cognitively and emotionally happier on the long term because I exercise almost every day. Um, I learned that by using a stress device that can measure quantify stress, that if I focus on relaxing myself, my stress level goes three times higher. So I had to learn to let things go. And maybe the most the strangest thing of all is that I learned how to try to reach mindfulness by learning how to meditate properly. Again, for me, I'm quite a contra freak. So I had to learn to let things go even during meditation sessions. And you did that through an app. There was, an, uh, there was a headband that can, that can measure EEG. And it transforms it into brain activity. So it tells you, giving you immediate feedback why you are meditating, how active your brain is.
all these gadgets, all these apps and subscriptions cost uh, money. And that's a challenge for the users on the one hand, because they have to pay for it. And especially in public systems, patients are not very open to paying for things because they feel insurance should cover them. And the second thing, of course, is that if people don't pay subscriptions, that's a challenge for the, the industry. So from that perspective, I don't know what's your thinking here in your book, My Health Upgraded. What I liked it was when you uh, mentioned that even if you stop subscriptions, even if you stop using devices, that, that doesn't mean that they didn't have a long-term effect because you learned something new and you maybe uh, changed your behavior or got knowledge that still keeps you going without a device or an app. You can also do it on paper. You don't have to start with buying a device. Um, I, I started on paper. I wanted to write down a score between one and 10 to my, to, about my physical health, how physically fine I am, my emotional health, how happy I am and my mental health, how, how much I can focus a day on work. And after a few weeks, I learned my own algorithm that if I exercise today, I can focus the next day better. And if I can exercise and focus every day when I need to, my emotional health gets better on the long term. And everyone has, I think their own personalized algorithms, but regarding money, those who have cars, I'm pretty sure that they, their car now gets taken care of better than themselves. So we, we spend money making sure that when the service light is on, I have to bring my car to the service because of course that's, that's what I do. When our own service light is on about our body, when something is changing and we notice it, but it's not, not, not a huge symptom to, to force us to go to a physician right now. We just, we just go keep on living with that roof. Yeah, I think uh, it's in, in in health, people just go until the end, until they have to, until they can't get out of bed. That's when you're like, okay, now I really have to. Why go. is that? Yeah. It's that because before you had only one chance that when it was very serious, go to a physician and get some medical help. You had no chance to, to access anything about yourself, but now you do. So my point is with digital health, with all these apps, you know, methods and technologies and sensors and devices, you can learn about yourself. You can be curious about your health and how it is changing. And maybe it might help you to spot some changes sooner than before, maybe catch diseases as early as possible or prevent them from happening. But now we can be curious. Before there was no chance for worldwide. You know, there's this joke when a patient comes into a doctor's office and the doctor says, Ooh, you know, based on your uh, liver tests, you should stop drinking. And because your heart is weak, you should not uh, have too much sex. And of course, you should absolutely stop smoking and get more sleep. So no more partying on Fridays. That's how you will be able to live long. And then the patient says, but if I cut everything that you just mentioned out. Why would I even want to have a long life? You know, that's, that's a central European perspective. I mean, I come from Hungary. Uh, I'm come from, I come from the Eastern part of the Bronx of Hungary. That's how I call it. There you, you grow up learning that drinking alcohol is normal. Of course, at every social uh, activity, we have to do that because that's how we make friends and, and even talk with relatives. You learn that big greedy food is the right food for you. If you don't eat enough, then you're not a man enough. Um, you learn that exercising is just for, you know, people who are into fitness and running marathons, not just regular people. You don't all these bad habits, but these are wrong. 
I mean, I want to live a very long and happy life and a healthy life. And if I don't dedicate effort and time and even some money to it, that's just not going to happen. Or it might happen by luck. I'm really fine with people saying that I, I would never ever want to use any digital health technologies, but then they need to acknowledge that their lives depend on pure luck. For those who want to get a chance, we need it's a responsibility to give them the chance to live healthier life. So the te- these technological changes are not here to to push all of us into changing anything about our lifestyle. These these are about giving those a chance who want to have a chance. For the rest, we will still have insurance systems that might make them pay a hundred times more because they smoke, because that's how much more they cost to the healthcare system. Let's not get let's not get to that doctor bibador scenario. You went uh, through five genomic tests and one DNA sequencing so far, right? So can you tell me more about that? Why five different tests? How different were the results and the consequent decisions that yeah, you made? There, there were different results. That's, uh, that's, that's a pressure you get that how, how is it possible that I have the same DNA over, over time, but these tests, came back to me with different results. One of them told me that I have a improved risk for lung cancer. The other told me that I have a decreased risk for lung cancer. So what's the situation now? Well, my background is in genetics, uh, genetic yeah, research. That's what so I wanted to do. You have a PhD. I wanted, that's why I wanted to check those companies out f- from the inside. So what I learned that when they claim more than what they can deliver, they have to get shut down. And the FDA, the American Food and Drug Administration, shut these companies down two years ago because they claim too much. What they can claim though now is that they can give you a risk that you have for certain medical conditions based on the studies they they selected, based on the genetic components they looked at today. But if new studies come out tomorrow, your risk might change with the same DNA that you have tomorrow. You know, that's exactly one thing I feel that is kind of discouraging when it comes to genomic and genetic testing, the epigenetic factors. So everything that surrounds us and influences if maybe some risk is going to uh, actually show or just going to stay on paper. And it's not even analyzed by these companies. So regarding risks for medical conditions, even knowing your exact risk doesn't help because the same it was lead to the same exact lifestyle changes, little alcohol uh, or no alcohol, no smoking, um, more exercises and healthy diet. For all the conditions, you will get these. But there are some companies that come up with um, definitive results. Like I learned that my risk for skin cancer is uh, many times higher than yours. So I'm, I'm not in good relationship with the sun. I can't use a solarium, of course. I learned my chance for thrombosis. So long flights, I have to exercise two, three hours, every, every two, three hours. It's very useful information in my life. So regarding these definitive answers, this can be life-saving. Regarding risks, that, that doesn't really lead to any lifestyle changes. Everyone should follow those four things uh, primarily. How optimistic would you say you are when it comes to the development and technology? You're a big fan of technology, of course, and science fiction. So maybe how would you distinguish between science fiction, futurism, and realistic expectations? I'm overly optimistic about technologies, and I'm overly pessimistic about people. 
So we are the bottleneck of innovation here. We, we don't like to change. We don't want to change your lifestyle. Just give me a drug to take without my activity and let me live a hundred years. That's not the case. Or I don't want to deal with my symptoms unless it's very serious, like you mentioned before. So then I go to get medical care, but it might be too late. So we are the, the problems here. Regarding futuristic studies and science fiction, um, science fiction always is always based on what science can do today. That's the cognitive component. And there's an estrangement component that means, okay, but what if, what if I change this? What if I use the technology or it goes berserk or it becomes very optimistically uh, useful in our lives? So I, I love checking that what if questions every day or so. Science fiction creates those bridges between the what if um, scenarios and what we have in practice today. And I think the job of futuristic, of people working in futuristic studies is to close those gaps by helping policymakers to learn about these technologies, by making patients, by persuading patients to be proactive about their care, by helping physicians understand that with more technologies, you have more time for the patient, the reason why you became a physician. So our job to make, to help all stakeholders of healthcare to, to bridge the gap between science vision like technologies and the practical use of care today. The practical implication is one thing I really am interested in a lot because with all the technological advancements, we have a lot of positive expectations, how things will improve, and then all sorts of unintended consequences happen. For example, you track your uh, calories, how much you burn by exercise, and then you feel like you can have another donut. You know, you, you uh, put an IT system in a hospital because you're hoping that you're going to gather more data and improve care and then the link between the patient and the doctor gets lost if because most of the IT system at the moment are becoming a barrier you might not even get to the data that could help you improve a patient's care i don't know what's what's your take on the 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 relationship between the positive things the technology is bringing and all these unintended consequences. If you just look at diabetes, I mean, there's more and more solutions for it. And yet it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And the predictions are that it's going to, to increase. As the medical futurist, I say it's never enough. As a physician, I think we don't acknowledge um, medical innovations enough. I mean, we, you talk about diabetes patients, not using these innovations, but now they can live decades longer because of new treatments and technologies. HIV patients can live almost as long lives as anyone else without any conditions. We eradicate that smallpox in the 1980s. So we eradicate global diseases. We can treat chronic conditions. We can, we are constantly prolonging life expectancy. It's almost 90 around the world on average. There are places where it's almost a hundred on average. So, why using all these innovations and technologies and medicine is booming and we are living much healthier and safer and longer lives. That's true that we should still look at it in a way that it's not, not enough until there are side effects, until there are patients suffering from symptoms, until there are the unexplainable, unexplainable deaths and accidents that might happen because of lack of information or wrong decisions. We have work to do, but it only goes through digital health. But do you think? 
I guess we are aware that it's never going to be enough of technology just because there's so much still to discover. And the more we know, the more we realize how much we don't know. So, for example, we learn about um, the the structure of the human body. We've got immunotherapies, which are inspiring because they're addressing a completely new targets and solving um, diseases on a new level. And yet you've got the same targets in different patients and they react differently or all drugs do not work with all patients. And it seems like biology, as much as we're trying to hack it, keeps proving us that we, there's something else that we will never tackle. I don't think the, the end point of healthcare is to decode everything that's in biology to understand everything that might not even be possible. The end point is when everyone can, can make their own decisions about how they want to live and maybe even to how long they want to live. So when we, we get in control, we are not now. We just think, but we are not. We depend on luck and uh, plenty of other things. When we get in control, that's going to be the end, the successful end point of healthcare. And it's still quite far away in the future. A few years ago, uh, you mentioned that digital literacy is one thing that should be taught in medical schools. How much different attitude towards digital solutions from medical students or doctors do you see today compared to, let's say, five, ten years ago? Platforms are different. And what's different is, is, the, is the scale or the, the amount of communication we perform through these channels. It seems like uh, living on Facebook and Instagram is the only way to live a, a real, real life, even though that's not the case. So finding the balance or harmony between overhyping digital communication and and grasping real life in the real world is the real challenge for medical students today. Sometimes they know more about these channels than I do, and I've been teaching this for almost a decade now. But it's more about um, uh, a two-way learning environment that... It's not just me telling them what they need to know as a physician, telling the patient what they need to follow as orders. It's about I telling them things and, and them teaching me things. Now, it, it must become a collaborative partnership between educators and students, just like in the case of patients and physicians. Do, do you f- sense or observe that the acceptance of digital is higher than it used to be? Are doctors just accepting this as a new normal, as something that they will have to implement compared to, because when the digital technologies were entering healthcare, doctors kept uh, warning that they are becoming bureaucrats instead of um, helpers to the patients. You know, they wanted to talk to patients and they have to deal with technology. That's why when technology is not done right and when it's perceived as a barrier, it's not welcomed. So how much do you think that's changed? When physicians see the benefits of using technologies, they are hooked up or immediately. I mean, six, on average, 60% of the time physicians spend at the hospital is spent on administration. If you tell a medical student that's going to happen to them, they leave medical school now. No one wants to do that. With technologies, this could be reduced to almost zero. Uh, with technologies, it could be reduced the, the way they... They access data about their patients and they can share this, that data or data sets throughout the systems could be reduced and improved so much. 
by the use of some simple technology. So when they see the benefits, they are absolutely in. But for this, we need to see, we need to show them the practical benefits, not just talking about IT issues and, and the future of medical records. We need to persuade them that with more, by using more technologies, you have more precious time of yours to spend on the things that, that made you become a physician before. For example, dealing with the patient, with eye contact and providing empathy and, and real care, not turning away from the patient to a computer to input a few details. And these changes do not even require really disruptive innovations, just a few good technologies. But as long as we can show them the results, I, I don't have fears about physicians rejecting those. Yeah, um, uh, Rasu Shrestha from UPMC said it nicely when he said that innovation, when done right, is going to make technology invisible. So when you have real technologies such as, let's say, using voice recognition on the ceiling to for making notes so the doctor doesn't have to do that manually. My surgeon friend is doing that already. And it's not about, you know, someone gave that technology to him or his supervisors or his hospital or the government system wanted him to use it. He got fed up with spending his precious time that took so much time and money to, to create those skills for him through the educational system to spend that time on such things as that can be replaced by a voice to text technology. So now he's using an application, a free application on his phone to, to make all his notes. He checks it after, after it was translated into a text just to make sure there are no uh, faults in that, but that's it. He saves so much time because he wanted to make a change. It makes sense that healthcare adoption is maybe slower than adoption of technologies in other industries. And it's especially understandable from the doctor perspective because a doctor can just try something out, kill a patient and go home and say, yeah, I, I learned something today. It's innovation. So in your perspective, in your opinion, do you think innovation adoption is too slow in healthcare and could be accelerated and how there's no environment for that if you work as a physician in the healthcare system you are not encouraged to come up with ideas you're not even asked even if you come up with some why, why would your supervisors be open to that why do you want to change something when it usually doesn't come from individuals like you but those physicians who, who are technologically savvy and, and who knows how to bring change and they want to make it happen, they meet huge obstacles on the way because the whole healthcare system is structured in a way that it does not welcome innovation if it comes from people in the bottom. Why is that? Um, because there are business needs and business driving forces and, and organize, uh, um, regulatory agencies, governments, huge companies, pharma, can bring innovation into healthcare, but why would it come from a patient or a physician? How can one individual bring something new to the table? Because before they had no access to the good stuff, the, the, the access to clinical studies, all of them, and, and new information, and, and they couldn't crowdsource information by using networks of peers around the world. Now they can. This changed, but the environment didn't change that fast. So now what happens is, Patients, some patients in the U.S. crowdfund through social media the money they need for their oncological operations and oncological treatments. That sound that sounds awful. Some physicians are using crowdsourcing and crowdfunding to make an idea into a product because they have a great technological idea. They have the practical knowledge to make it happen, but they meet obstacles along the way. 
So unless we change the environment in healthcare to reward the, the approach to innovation, these individuals will have to fight the system from the bottom to the top. And I saw examples when healthcare facilities could change this approach by including design thinking into the office, by literally playing board games that are board games designed for uh, improving teamwork and the design thinking innovation for physicians. And they make them play board games in the, uh, the medical sessions and grand rounds to make sure they will work together better. They can think about changes, even fine tuning some tiny things and elements in the process that might help patients get to care uh, faster or, or provide them with more efficient care. It's about this new way of welcoming innovation. And unless it comes from supervisors and healthcare leaders and providers, that's, that will still come from the bottom. A very personal question, and you can decline to answer if you, if you feel like it. When was the last time that you had to go to the doctor's office? Oh, I, I, uh, I found a GP. I had to find a GP. I, I moved in Budapest. So I had to find a new GP and, uh, I, I'm so happy and I'm so lucky because she is quite into digital health. So when we first met and I taught her about the things I measure, she told me that, well, that's why she became a GP. A primary care physician wants to have an impact on patients' lives. And I have no symptoms as of today, but I want to prevent things from happening. And she is a partner in that. So um, I, I went there, we had a blood test, and um, I showed her some of my data. And actually, it, it was very useful. I, I can tell you a personal story. At the end of August, I had a quite a serious food poisoning. Uh, after three days, I could tell I won't die, but it took three days to, to acknowledge that. And um, when I was okay with that and I, I recovered, I texted my GP, so I emailed my GP saying that, according to my fitness tracker, my resting pass is 73 and it used to be 63, 64. It's 10 more than it usually is. And is there a problem? Shall I see you or not? And she told me that it must be because I lost a lot of fluid and, and recovering this uh, loss of fluid takes time. If it doesn't go back as I recover after two weeks or so, then we should see each other. But until then, there is no reason to do that. So she trusted my way of using devices to get some data about my my life and i trusted her decision because she know me in person this way i i uh, i saved myself a trip to my gp for no reason and i saved her time and effort to deal with something that could have been done in a one minute email so for me that's that's um kind of interaction that that shows the future of primary care that involves patients as engaged partners 100 gigabytes of data you mentioned in the beginning. Do you ever consolidate it? Did you ever try to analyze them together? Like, I'm sure you would find some. Of course I did. (laughs) Of course I did. As a geneticist, I had to analyze my own raw data from my, from the genomic companies. And actually, there are very cheap services online, like uh, Prometheus. That's a service that connects the the raw data you have in your report to studies about genetics and medical conditions. For five dollars, they show you all the the associations, and they have they had color codes about which ones are quite grounded. I mean, there are thirty studies showing that. Then it's that's the case. If there are just five, that might be. So you can have an opinion yourself about which one is more serious. I think I learned more from that self-analyzed report than from the reports from companies. So, of course, I analyze my own data. 
I'm pretty sure you might have a prediction. How, how long do you think you're going to live? That's the last question. I don't have a crystal ball. The plan is to live at least 100 and work cognitively until then. And then die on Mars. Why Mars? <laughs> well, it's it would be a quite a great ending of, of uh, being a futurist to to die, not on impact, like Elon Musk said, on a different planet. That could be a message for, for my next generations that we we have to keep on discovering and and bring the 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 borders of science further and further away. This was the first episode of Faces of Digital Health podcast, formerly known as Medicine Today on Digital Health. You can find, rate, follow, and subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or Podbean, and your reviews will be highly appreciated in iTunes. In the next episode, some thoughts from an organization aiming at improving health and well-being of everyone on the planet. In seven years, Startup Health accepted 200 companies from 18 countries under its umbrella. There's a, a, a global opportunity in health and the opportunity to transform health everywhere in the world. And we believe that uh, when you start to connect these siloed innovation hubs around the world, when you bring these entrepreneurs together, when you start sharing data and insights about what's working and what's not working, when you uh, supercharge by becoming one, um, anything is possible. And, and we believe that some of the great innovations over the coming years are going to happen all over the world. And the innovation cycles will speed up and leapfrog by thinking globally. These were the words from the Startup Health founder, Unity Stokes. But in the next episode, you will also hear from co-founder Stephen Krein and the first investor in the organization, Esther Dyson. Stay tuned.